Integrated Rhythm, Laurel Ryan Interview, Part 2. Love it, enjoy it, caress it. Let it love and enjoy and caress your ears, because it is wonderful. Also, don't forget, this incredible music is Baron Ryan. That's Laurel's brother, and this music is part of his new project, uh, which is all rights-free music. It's amazing. If you want to hear more about it, we will talk about it more at the break. But if you just can't wait, go over to firstofitskind.net. That's firstofitskind.net, where you can read all about this amazing project. He's a badass. He's a... Uh, composer and he's he does really fancy performances and he even does TED Talks and that kind of stuff. He's pretty awesome. So, uh, on, with, on with the interview. Uh, I think that also gets us into this um, like standard of black excellence that people mm-hmm. seem to have to be able to meet. So when you think about uh, the way this also, there's, of course, because there's a part of this experience that applies to everyone. So if you think about instructors, um, and you two have both, like, Bobby full-time, Chisomo, uh, you know, teaching dance at least. Something. Yeah, burgeoning yeah. and in other spaces. The majority of, of Black dancers who come into the dance with another codified dance experience where they have an expert level where they could potentially teach another black art form at your event. They get hired before those of us who come in with any other experience, any other life experience that might make them equally good teachers. Uh, Because you know, you know, every, every dance event is like, well, you know, what else can we offer these folks? And how do, you know, how do we involve the, uh, how do we kind of cover the, the modern iterations of the music that we all listen to, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, people, I understand as an organizer myself, like wanting to create a more, a richer experience. Um, but so there's that, there's that thing. So, uh, people find more value in you as a black person in the dance community, a uh, person of any color, if you can teach hip hop, house, whacking, locking, um, breaks up, like if you tap, if you have something else that is black that you can contribute. And then once you've proven yourself capable of teaching, not not good, not bad, just capable of teaching classes in that. And you'll have dancers come to that because it's, you know, it's kind of novice or, uh, or novel because they, you know, you don't typically get offered another uh, Black dance experience or might feel uncomfortable just like finding the nearest, um, uh, you know, like, South Central African movement class in your in your hometown and been like, I'm just gonna learn this. Especially if you're, you know, a progressive Lindy Hopper aware of uh, appropriation. Well, then why not take this opportunity to learn it? So you're gonna have, whether or not you're a good teacher, you're gonna have people in your class. So there's that. Uh, and then there is the issue of, um, self-sustainability. So if you need to make money for yourself before you start teaching swing dancing, let me throw this a different way. Think of the, think of the full-time black dance instructors who you know of. What were they doing before they were full-time dance instructors? Was it a high paying job? Uh, Do they have a spouse that supports them? Do they come from a family that could support them if their uh, finances didn't work out? Like if the teaching thing bobbled for a while, because there was a a period when I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to try it out. I haven't been able to, uh, really dedicate myself to like finding a partner uh, or 
you know, doing the like competition into teaching track uh, because I've had a job that often requires me to work weekends and um, also doesn't pay me enough to just get myself places and then let the organizations take care of the rest. I've been burned a few times by uh, organizers who just wanted, you know, a, a black face there and they're like, you'll work and <laughs> you're dark enough. And, uh, and like cut corners because I was just like trying to get my name out there. Uh, every bad experience leads to a better writer. Um, but it was, <laughs> that's a tip. <laughs> you can take that to the bank. But Laurel has stated one of the great truths of instruction. <laughs> my my writer started off like a very loving paragraph. And now <laughs> it is several pages long. And sometimes I'll give it to someone and they'll be like, who would do that to you? <laughs> and I'm like, someone <laughs> did, which is why it's there now. <laughs> like, Yeah. Like you will not stick me in a room with five other giggling people. You will not put me in a place where I'm sleeping on the floor. Uh, I will have the ability to close a door between me and the outside world. I will not close have door. your, yeah. your uh, cat or your, any of your animals, but I especially not a cat because I am allergic to them. Uh, even the one that was sitting in my lap. Thankfully, he wasn't up near my face because otherwise I would be a sneezing right now. But like, he's not allowed in my room um, for good reason. I will get a sinus infection. Uh, like you cannot like work me until late. Like you can't have me emceeing until the last dance and then have me doing the first class in the morning. I will not be ready for I you. Like. I had to put, uh, I have to have at least eight hours between when I get home from the dance and when I am expected to teach class the next morning. Notice I didn't say eight hours of sleep because <laughs> that's too, like, I just, I wouldn't, you know, that's too much. Too like, big an ask. Right, right. Yeah. But like, you have to drive me home from the dance and I have to have eight hours before I'm supposed to be teaching again. So that yeah. I can hopefully get like seven hours of sleep. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, you know, that's a tough lesson to learn. So Bobby and I, Bobby and I have joked that like 2020 was supposed to be like a, a good year for me because I, I started to get into looking at writers because I started to get invited to teach at different things. Um, and I remember reaching out to Valerie Salstrom, who's essentially like swing mom. And I was like, what do I need? I was asked to teach at this event. And she was like, you need to ask for a room with a door like that, like straight up room with the door. And I was like, I would have never thought of that. And then like the other things, same thing. It's like things that you would think are common sense, but you uh, learn. vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I was trying to, I had decided I'm in a job where I'm getting more and more depressed uh, cause I can't see a way out of it. The thing I really want to do and that I seem to be the best at is teach people how to dance. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to go for it. Um, I'd also, I had a pass to like world jam in Madrid, which I'd postponed for a year. Cause I was like, how am I ever going to get from Tulsa, Oklahoma to Madrid, Spain? Uh, on, on my salary, it's not going to happen. Um, and so, and I'd also met my friend, uh, Thomas Sticky, who is, uh, was mostly raised in the States, but he's uh, Polish and had uh, returned, uh, or had, he had moved to uh, Krakow. And he has like a practice of inviting people, like part of his training is inviting followers who he would like to uh, practice with or teach with to his town and then finding gigs for them and, and getting in as much practice time as possible. But I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go like teaching. Like we had met once, danced once and he was like, look me up sometime. And I was like, you know what? I will. And so 
I arranged to go stay with him for like a month, a little over a month and headed down to world jam for a hot second. And, uh, where people were dancing so fast on marble floors. And I was the only one like, ah, no, no. When everybody else was like, faster, make them dance again. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, think of their bones. Um, and, and, and then I came back to the States and was like, all right, I'm ready. And people were like, well, who's your partner? I'm like, ah, uh, TBD, I don't know. Uh, great question. Tell you what, I'm international now. So how about that? And they're like, I don't think so. Uh, and then I was, you know, mostly teaching in Tulsa, by which I mean, I started like delivering food to make ends meet. So uh, shockingly in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the biggest little city in Oklahoma, uh, it like teaching was not a full time thing for me. And I also didn't want to move because all like by this time, all of my family who had moved outside of Tulsa had returned. You know, teaching like the, the, that Lindy Hop is a folk dance in, in that it came from the people. It was not handed down to anyone from a system, uh, or formalized. It was, it came from the people who were listening to the music, it came from a, the culture at a grassroots level. And I teach people uh, about craft, which is a like, when you think of craft, well, when I think of craft, I think, you know, like quilting, wood turning, uh, needlework, uh, basket weaving, all those things that start in function and then become beautified. Things you quickly. kind of imagine doing by firelight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sorry, that's my brain. Yeah, if if you can attach like the term bee, like quilting bee, sewing bee, whittling bee, um, basket weaving bee. I don't know if they're basket weaving bees, but like if you imagine learning it at the feet of an elder, those craft. Um, there you go. Like my my grandmother taught me. Yeah, and that's very similar to how this particular dance and other like folk dances get passed through the generations. I mean, you hear people talk about, yeah, I learned this from my grandfather. Even I, uh, my parents were from a, uh, the Assemblies of God Christian denomination, my father, a pastor's child, um, and my mother just, you know, child of two devout people. The Assemblies of God, churches at the in the 50s were like dancing sinful mm. just sinful you can't do it so they did not grow up dancing um and then they went to a religious school in tulsa where they met and fell in love um and overcame obstacles in the 1970s to have three beautiful biracial anyway uh they while they did not grow up dancing uh like my father, when he was um, first like getting his career started in Tulsa, would often play for like supper clubs and um, you know country clubs and just clubs at the time. And so he was constantly watching people dance to the music he was playing to. And so I remember like, he would dance my, especially my sister and I, around our living room when we were kids and we were doing kind of an imitation of what he was perceiving from what he saw. So he wasn't being taught like, this is the Foxtrot. This is the Lindy Hop. This is the Waltz. Like he was just doing what he from the piano was seeing other people do. And so, uh, you know, that was part of my dance heritage is this music that was passed to him that he then passed to his children and the dance that he learned at the feet of strangers, but still older people that he then passed on to his children. And I could not tell you if, I mean, it was like sidestep, 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 sidestep. It was a very even dance a lot of the time, a little waltzing to the, to the swing waltzes, which I wish people would do more swing waltzes. They're so great. They're lovely. Uh, 
but we're not ready for that conversation uh, of when we, of when we make the, a, a dance night sound and look more like what was happening at the time where it's a mix of rhythmic traditions, all, all swung, of course, but there's one jazz. Anyway. Uh, so yeah. So craft, what I'm teaching right now is craft and it does like dancing, teaching dance has further honed my ability. I find those circles like teaching dance to either group full of fresh faces back when I was teaching for uh, the our local dance, uh, which is entirely volunteer run and um, and then going into events with people who I probably have never met before definitely haven't heard of me because at the end of the dance, like every weekend somebody would be like, oh, you're teaching here And like yes uh, or my favorite, <laughs> at the end of Lindy Focus. And I was like, I was all over Lindy Focus uh, two years ago. I say all over. What I mean is I was performing a few times. Michelle and I were teaching together and we were doing the, uh, the yeah, the camp meetings. And on the very last, on New Year's Eve, I guess it was New Year's by that time, but I was dancing with somebody and I offered to uh, this, this person asked me, they said, do you want to lead follower switch? And I said, switch. Cause I was there teaching as a lead. And at the end of the dance, this person said to me, wow, you're, you're really good at leading. And I was like, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I had to really check, like to check in with myself and to be like, are you so vain that you just expect people to know you right now? Are you one of those folks? And then I was like, no, my name was on the list. <laughs> I mean, I don't, of course, like if you're not taking beginner classes, you may not pay attention to who's teaching them, but <laughs> it's like, thank you. Uh, I also... Um, yeah, I mean, like we got onto this subject because I was talking about like how it's, it's very difficult. It's more difficult for people, uh, who are part of a ethnic or racial group that have been oppressed and therefore are less likely to have financial. This is of course, not to imply that like there aren't, you know, plenty of middle-class and upper middle-class and wealthy black people in this country. But um, just from what I've seen, the people who are wanting to be involved in this dancing on like a teaching level, a traveling teaching level, uh, are often without a financial support system outside of their own. So if you aren't being believed when you tell people I would be good for your event, whether or not I'm teaching with like a local assistant or if I'm bringing in a, an instructor who I found or you're pairing me with somebody you found, like either way I'm gonna add value. If they're like, I'm not so sure, then you gotta deliver some food or uh, find another job or like, <laughs> and so I look at a lot of the other um, potential instructors who are coming up um, and I, I wonder about their support systems. And then I like, there is a huge difference in how black men are treated in the scene versus black women, uh, regardless of uh, colorism. It's like, first it's, um, cis men and then it's colorism like that's how you know like that's how uh like the black folks who are, are prized in this scene and you know as a light-skinned person i recognize that i have some i have some privilege over uh like some darker skinned women which is so stupid but um there is a there's a bigger belief in like oh well this black man's gonna be excellent than 
I'll bet this black woman knows what she's talking about. <laughs> because people really love the look of like a, a handsome black man dancing, dancing through the room. And then a black woman, it's like, well, are you attractive to me? Do I want to put my mouth on your mouth? If yes, then sure, I'll hire you. Like, I'll put you in front of people. I will pay attention to you. I'll come to your class. Otherwise, uh, no thank you. <laughs> or uh, do I think that you have experience outside of this dance? Because otherwise, what do you know that I don't? Um, and so I think like being involved in teaching is a really tricky balance for a lot of black dancers. Uh, again, that balance of, of devaluing versus tokenism, but uh, especially for black women to be um, like, we're all like, I mean, people are so different. Everybody is such an individual. I mean, people, I'm a firm believer that everybody who participates in the stance brings something of value. They bring their own voice. And if they are allowed to uh, express it, we are all the richer as a community. But uh, people who can teach how to teach other people how to find ways to express themselves and help them unlock that potential are few and far between. And that's not what most people are wanting from black instructors. They want you to like teach them how to do something else. And then also like entertain them in an invitational or whatever. Like it's just not, uh, it's not the same standard as for, white instructors. Yeah. I, I feel like something I've seen also is um, there are, when we think about positions of power in the scene, like the people who are organizing and hiring and um, really kind of determining things are predominantly white. And um, those individuals are therefore determining who has a voice and who gets to teach and who gets to whatnot. And so there's kind of been, you can see that there are people who've decided the way forward and like what inclusive practices look like. Um, and so when it comes to teaching partners or um, hiring somebody for event, et cetera, like a lot of what you're talking about comes into play, right? So it's, um, people determine your perceived value as a black woman. So like, okay, well, you can teach something else. So we'll have you come in and do your little song and dance and it'll be fine. Everyone will enjoy it. And then we're going to put you over there or whatever, you know, or you can't do something else. So therefore you have to be paired with somebody that we perceive to be more valuable than you. And that person also should be black. So we have the black teaching pair and you get to teach the beginners and move on, you know? And so there's their main not be um, expressed or demonstrated like this um, support structure for upcoming black instructors. And, and like you said, um, not saying that everybody's vulnerable, but um, when we consider systems of oppression, when you think about racialized oppression, that does leave you more vulnerable. Um, I, I know I've been in conversations where people have talked about, uh, because as you've also alluded to, um, follower and actually I, I want I do I, I'm trying to be inclusive is how I say this follower privilege but then also you're not strictly a follower you also lead and you teach from that perspective so it really is considering um being female bodied right so um there is a dynamic there where um your voice in the support system is, is often you're, you're disadvantaged to some degree. And we see this, especially when uh, people get pregnant and have kids and then try to reemerge into the scene. We think about people, instructors who've had babies and um, how many have been able to come back into the scene. And 
And so if you are black and you have children, how easy is it for you to participate? And so, yeah, like, or exactly. And so do you have family members who are there to help you take care of the kids? Do you, is there some kind of daycare situation there? Um, because I've seen for some women accommodations taken and those women all kind of come from a majority perspective, but I haven't yeah. seen the same accommodations for black women. Like, I mean, I wonder if people would think if they can even think of black women who've had kids who've re-entered the scene. I can think of one and I've heard from her how difficult it has been to persist. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I think most of the women, because I, I don't know which woman you're talking about. So like that, that just shows you a few, A, how few black uh, women are teaching. Um, but when it comes to uh, like the issue of bearing a child, uh, then the only women who I can think of who have... Uh, been able to kind of like transition, keep their status, so to speak, have been married to their partner, like their teaching partners or to another prominent mm -hmm. dancer. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's, uh, or they have a parent who can travel with them, which mm -hmm. uh, what a, what a privilege that would be to have retired parents who don't still have to work. Um, who can be like, you know, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll come and watch your kid until 4am. Absolutely. Love to, uh, sign, sign me up. Um, I'm 65 <laughs> and I love it. Uh, and so, um, I think a lot of, uh, and you know, I've, we've provided childcare at the event that I, uh, ran in Tulsa and we had, I, I mean, they're members of our scenes, but they were licensed nannies and it was still, um, you know, we were, we were hiring a pair of new parents. And, uh, so it was like, in a way, sure. We like, cause we like the, the nannies were volunteers as well. So, you know, are still, still a cheap option to have two instructors who can share, not just share a room, but share a bed. And, uh, you know, so they can be in a place where they can have, and they don't need another room for their child because their child's not at an age where it needs to be in a separate room or, you know, whatever. Uh, like they're going to keep a pretty good eye on it. Uh, and then, you know, they're going to go to bed earlier than most other folks, but it was, uh, yeah, it's a market difference as opposed to somebody who's, uh, whose partner or if they're parenting alone and they don't have that same support system, like I, I cannot imagine, um, what that would be like. Uh, well, and, so. and actually one of the women that I'm thinking of um, is married and their, their partner does dance, but through the process of um, uh, becoming pregnant and um, having their child like has been um, kind of pushed out of different things. And so um, we value it's, it, it, there are these small, seemingly innocuous things that happen, but they all contribute to edging people out who are more vulnerable. And so I think this goes back to what you were saying about like, um, when we think about oppression and, um, toxic masculinity and like white supremacy, like we're not thinking about these monstrous beings. We're thinking about us. Like, so you, the person listening to this, the person who can see themselves in the mirror, we're talking to you. I'm talking to myself every day. 
asking myself these questions. How am I contributing to this two systems of oppression? Because when things, when we start to consider people who are away from our central way of thinking, we do little things to push them out and to not support them. And so even like Bobby, I was thinking about what you're saying about competitions, like, um, instruct like international instructors such as yourself like have the opportunity to choose what you might dance to you have the gift of choice in um, the invitational space in your competition space but then when we think about other levels of dancing those dancers don't have any kind of choice they are subjected to the to a standard so it's like you have to you have to demonstrate that you can respond in the specific way that we want you to. But when we think about art forms and expression, like how can we shape our community so that people can show up as their full selves and create art in unique and beautiful ways, you know? Um, But like, if you are marginalized at all, then you're slowly edged out, you know, Um, or you're at threat of slowly being edged out. You, yes, you, listening to this podcast, you can take a class from Laurel. She'll be teaching online for Lindy Groove Thursday, April 15th, 2021. The class is free to live stream on Facebook and YouTube and is at 8.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Trust us, it will be both very good and very fun. By the way, what is that fantastic music we're listening to again? It's Baron Ryan. That's Laurel's brother, a badass pianist known for his combination of classical and jazz music. His new album, First of Its Kind, is rights-free. You heard us correct. Anyone can use it. Put it on your podcast, your YouTube video, your own music project. It's all yours. Want the album and any of his other work? Head to BaronRyan.com. Want to hear him play with Ryan's father, yet another badass pianist? Head to RyanAndRyanMusic.com. And most importantly, you can contribute to Barron's project of making rights-free music. Because as delicious as it is, you can't live off of admiration and appreciation. Go to firstofitskind.net. Check out the story, learn how awesome this project is, and help support it. That's firstofitskind.net. Hey everybody, this is Bobby White from Integrated Rhythm. We're here to ask you to please consider donating to the podcast. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash integrated rhythm. You can do so by Venmoing at Bobby Swungover. And make sure to put a little IR in the note so we make sure it goes to the right people. You can also do so by PayPaling at Bobby White 3. And once again, putting a little IR in the in the window there. Doing so will help us keep this podcast going, and we love doing it, and we hope you love it too. If you can't afford to donate at this time because times are rough, we totally understand. We don't want you to put yourselves out. We want you to keep enjoying the podcast for free. However, if you have a little bit of pocket change in your pocket, we would greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thanks, and have a great day. And... One of my favorite things to say right now is that where we exist is at the intersection of seemingly opposing ideas. So while we all, while oppression impacts all of us and we all experience moments where we're disadvantaged, um, privilege is just as important to examine as well. And um, what is tough about privilege is that it is so baked in uh, the way that we function, that it is hidden from us. And so we are often unaware of the privileges that we carry, often until we lose something or until something shifts. And so, and um, then this also impacts us differently with intersectionality, right? So um, I, I often say, and I try to, to say this, um, so that people can see like, oh, if 
an immigrant who is because if you think about the spheres of influence, there are like the spheres of oppression. Sorry. So I'm actually just going to point to a resource. There's a resource called the power of flower, the flower of power. I always get that mixed up. But um, if you type in the flower of power, you might be like, what is this? The 1970s? Well, it's not the 1970s, but this is a really cool tool. Um, there, it, it kind of easily shows you different aspects of, um, of, of oppression. So it, involved in that are like citizenship, age, ability level, um, sexual orientation, gender expression, gender identity, um, race, class, um, and, and with that is also like education level, all of that. If you look at that, I'm actually pretty mixed in terms of my privilege, um, because I am, I'm a woman. And if we look at kind of like, and I have a hard time saying male, female dynamic, because I also want to acknowledge my non-binary and gender non-conforming friends. So, but within the existing system, the way that we're socialized, we, that, that, false binary is opposed and so of the two the female is inferior so um so being a woman being black so being far on that racialized spectrum because this is the other thing is that race is also a spectrum and any person with a racialized identity is impacted when we have incidences of racial violence just wanted to throw that out there given the current landscape Mm-hmm. You need to say that um, being an immigrant and having been of like somewhat lower socioeconomic status for a good part of my life, um, like there are a lot of things about my identity that are marginalized. But I'm an academic. <laughs> So I sit at the top of, I am now a tenured faculty member, I'm an associate professor. Um, I know, <laughs> bougie snaps. Um, I'm, I'm published um, as a friend of mine reminded me. I take up I, like all four pages. If you search me on Google, like there are four pages of Google before you get to somebody else with a similar and name. Yeah. Like there are lots of things about me that have privilege and which power. Is, which is why we call her four pages, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good nickname. And so four if pages. I don't. Four pages. If Char-char, I don't. That's your rapping name. AKA four pages. Four pages. Yes. That's your rapping name. Charcuterie. Yeah. Four pages. Um, listen to an earlier episode to get the Charcuterie Char joke. Um, <laughs> I won't tell you which one, so you have to listen to all of them. <laughs> um, but if I don't acknowledge where I have privilege and power, then I become harmful. Unexamined power and unexamined privilege sets you up to perpetuate systems of oppression and sets you up to incur harm, even to people who look like you. And so it is, and I say that if you're from a racialized minority, um, it is, but but the statement unexamined power is harmful is for everybody. That is for everybody. And so um, I talk about it for me so that people who obviously have more power can see that they need to, you need to ask some questions. You need to do some work. And you didn't yeah. put those systems of oppression in place, but you are culpable and complicit if you don't ask some questions. And so yeah, I actually, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's like the Facebook algorithm. Like it rewards you for participating in it. So if you um, find a way to quote unquote, make the system work for you, uh, which just means like abiding by the standards set for people of your race or your, um, you know, whatever your uh, like area of, minority is than abiding by the rules that like make it more uh, acceptable to a like white male dominated society, uh, white cis male dominated society. And uh, so if you, if you ever say like, I, I got here by myself and I am talking to my non-white friends out there. Like if you say that I got here by myself, 
you are wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, and there are people who came up alongside you who encouraged you. There are people who, um, who stood for you when other people didn't want to believe in you. There are people who uh, listened, like who were the shoulders you leaned on. Like there, you have contemporaries in this. You just may not realize it. And I like, it's so easy to fall into that trap of being like, well, uh, it's like, I, I can see the system because I've gone through something similar or because like, I, like I'm above all that stuff. Uh, I just want people to see me for me and not me as a person of color. And, uh, but that's actually part of that algorithm that rewards you of being like, no, be colorblind or, or uh, tell me how brave it is that I uh, don't conform to gender or tell me how, um, like, you know, how even though I uh, am not your expectation of X, Y, or Z that I make you feel comfortable Yes, I'll allow you to touch my hair. Yes, I'll allow you to, like, I will ignore your microaggressions. Like, that's part of that, that system rewards such behaviors. Um, and sometimes that reward is like, uh, you get put in a, in a position of power and influence, be it teaching, be it uh, performing, be it like you just like are blowing it up in competitions. Um, and you think like, yeah, I did it. I'm nailing this. But you're just, you're just on Facebook all the time. So Facebook rewards you. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, and what's challenging, what, as you mentioned, as a non-white individual, you have that, you're like, so for people who are aware, like yourself, you're like, how did the how how is the system rewarding me, and how am I am I here because of merit? Um, but those who are who don't have that checked, like yes, there is merit involved, but there are also systems in place. You are standing on the shoulders of giants. You're standing on other people's shoulders to get to where you are, and so it, not acknowledging that is is harmful. So, yeah. 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 There's, um, I mean, there's a lot of, sorry, Bobby, just like real quick. There's, so for example, I know Michelle t talked about um, that there can only be one black uh, discomfort. <laughs> uh, you know, we were warned about it. And I know people don't want to admit that it is often the case, but it doesn't, uh, if just because you got to be the black who was the one doesn't mean you're going to be the black another day or in another competition or like eventually they're going to get tired of you. Like it's just, uh, it can be so tempting to just, uh, ignore the system in order to have a modicum of self self-worth and, uh, sanity because it's so easy to fall into that crazy making of tokenism versus devaluing and so yeah it's it's so tempting just like it is tempting to be like look because only bad people are racist i cannot ex um you know display racist behaviors because i'm not a bad person in that trap of thinking and therefore not examining your own privileges like somebody in the the dominating uh society part of society it can be tempting if you are benefiting from the system and you are not like you don't look like or sound like or walk like or talk like that part of the dominating society to to just not examine it and be like i did it i nailed it uh sucks for them other hoes uh because i am crushing <laughs> people just need to get on my level is all that's that's basically yeah. it without actually examining uh, how you got there. Cause it breaks, it's another way that Lindy Hop hurts us. It's a way that literally everything in this society hurts us uh, because it just like, it sucks. It would suck 
to re-examine a situation and be like, oh, I see what happened. It was that they decided there could only be one black and I was the like most uh, beneficial choice to them in that like, I, I provided the most value to them as a judge or an organization or whatever uh, instead of I was just the most skilled dancer in that competition or I was the, like, I got the best feedback as a teacher. I did want to say, I wanted to say a thing. There was a thing that I forgot and then I remembered it just now. Um, you were talking about the pandemic and how you had all these people reach out to you because they're trying to show support. They don't, they have like, I'm going to say like um, maybe immature allyship, like they're like an, like mm-hmm. an, an um, awkward, awkward allyship. Um, yes. To be a little Baby bit. steps. Yes. Yeah. And so the, well-intentioned, but then they don't realize that as they're reaching out and asking you how you're doing and asking you intrusive questions, they're now like putting the burden on you to explain how you feel in a time that is challenging. And so, um, I mean, I remember like May, June, July of 2020 was heart-wrenching and hard. And but but when you're going through trauma like that, or you're being trauma is being re-injured, you have your people and you have your safe people where you have an established safety and security. Um, and so when other people are trying to get into that space for their educational value, then that that that's that's hard because a lot of what we were dealing with and a lot of what we're dealing with now for some people is an intellectual exercise, but for us is our lives. And so um, I I even think about like the rise in um, anti-Asian sentiment, um, uh, the racialized um, incidences that have been happening with our Asian American and Pacific Islander friends. Like um, I've even, wondered how to be an ally. And I've found myself in that space of awkward allyship, wanting to reach out. But I also remembered when the shoe was on the other foot, like that I didn't appreciate people coming out of the woodwork, expecting me to explain myself and so, and explain how I am. And so I hope that when people hear this, they hear this carefully and hear that compassion and um, the desire to learn are beautiful things. Um, putting the burden on somebody else to uh, emotionally process or um, go through an educational experience for you to educate you as to why right now is hard is also not okay. That you can deal with that by doing some reading. Um, so I, I heard that and I just wanted to take a moment and really say like, it's, what you're talking about is so real. And there are lots of people who don't realize that they were actually doing something once again, demonstrating awkward allyship. Um, And so, uh, and another word that I kind of thought of today, but I realized somebody else coined it is a stormy weather friend. And so someone who shows up when it's rough, but not in a way like they're not, always there they're like oh it's hard so are you you know so um yeah 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 it's like on on the average day they're the person that like you acknowledge across the room and you're like okay we both knew each other out there and then as soon as you like look unhappy they're like yeah girl tell me about it sister yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) who do do we need to fight i'll take my earrings off for you right girlfriend you're like I mean, (laughs) (laughs) do you know who I am? Uh, Yeah, I, I mean, on a personal level, and I know this differs for everybody. So I appreciated people saying, I'm thinking of you uh, because they knew to be I mean, and I imagine it's the same for a lot of people in the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities right now. Like if somebody asks, how are you? Well, the answer is heartbroken Uh, and heartbroken for months on end. (laughs) Like, uh, and every time I 
see footage or hear of a new uh, incident of violence or it escalates and then the perpetrator is uh, excused by people who have also exhibited the same types of racism or discrimination, heartbroken. The answer is heartbroken. Uh, so asking me to like constantly relive that, not fun. Don't ask me how I am. But if you just tell me like, hey, I know, <laughs> like you're acknowledging that we're not, uh, you're not close enough for you to like call me, but uh, right. to just to just be like, hey, I, I'm thinking of you. Um, or I know, like Michelle said, that somebody like just sent her food uh, just like through because you can I don't know if it was like what delivery service, but they weren't they didn't live here. Uh, they're like, you know, what? I'm just going to send you dinner. I know today probably was a rough day for you. Like, awesome. <laughs> Like that's actually very thoughtful and demonstrate, you know, you're using the resources that in that you have available to you to, um, to just like show support without uh, being uh, burdensome. I'll put it this way. Uh, yeah. I don't know if any person who spends most of their time in a men's bathroom can relate, but I will say for women, if somebody says, if somebody comes into a bathroom and says, does anybody have a tampon? Nobody's like, tell me about your flow and how long you've had it. And when you first had it, cause I'm about to tell you about mine. Somebody's just like, yes, I do. <laughs> or no, I don't <laughs> like, we're not yeah. like, yeah. let's get into the nitty gritty. It's just like, you, you know, if you can give a stranger a tampon, you do it. And then you're just like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right along here as I do. Or to use a less like uh, periody example, uh, a, a rubber band or a, a, a hair tie. Like, does anybody have a hair tie? Um, and somebody might up like the number of strangers who who give each other hair ties in this world. Massive, massive. Uh, you don't have to know a single human being in the room to ask if anybody has a hair tie because the experience of having for a lot of people having hair like in their face or sticking to their neck is familiar. Uh, and so if they have a hair tie, they might, uh, you know, pass it along. So like using the resources that you have to support people you don't really know, it, it doesn't have to be a massive demonstration of like, I stand with you. And I have learned some <laughs> things and I want to tell you all about the things I learned and have you pecked me on the back. Um, you can just give him a hair tie. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, I love the hair tie and the tampon example because you're right. Like, well, also, like you said, anyone who hasn't had experiences in a woman's bathroom doesn't necessarily know how, for we are like how much like you don't know you don't know somebody but that is a place of bonding like you walk into the bathroom strangers but then like there's this like code where it's like you look great girl get it you know like you need a, you need a tampon here you go but but the response isn't like a litany or a history of periods you know it's not like oh I know all these scientific facts about women's bodies and how you might've gotten to this point in your cycle. And then, <laughs> did you, was your last cycle 28 days ago or was it 31 days ago? Because I hear if you say, you know, like it's not demonstrating empathy, isn't like throwing those facts at that person or then, or asking questions like, Oh, well, did your, did your mother also have a heavy flow? And, um, you know, so addressing, <laughs> by the way, so, prove, prove to me that you have menstruation. Uh, <laughs> are you on your period right now? Why do you need this tampon? <laughs> I don't think your period is as bad as you said. I'm just, I don't have proof of that. But How can I know? Going back to toxic masculinity, I wish this would happen in our bathrooms. Not, uh, I, I wish that like people would be like, looking good. I don't know who you are, but like killing it, man. Get out there. You know, I would, I, I would appreciate that. Yeah, yeah it would, there's... I mean, it does require some vulnerability because like, 
in a woman's bathroom, you might be alone and be like, uh, does this look okay? You just got to trust a stranger to be like, yeah, and I mean it. Or to be like, um, or to be like, should I wear this tucked or untucked? And they're like, untucked, get out there. So you've got to yeah. like, you got to yeah. come like, it's, it's not like you're just standing there and some, and people are just like offering tampons. You got to have that moment of vulnerability to be like, I am bleeding. I don't bleed. Someone come to my aid. Uh, when are you more uh, vulnerable? <laughs> I want to give a quick, uh, if this ends up on on the actual episode, I want to give a quick shout out to Shelby Johnson, who I know works really hard on giving that kind of positive energy at like gyms and that kind of stuff. And I think it's just so awesome. That's yeah, that's, that's excellent. You, you, you know, Bobby, you bring up a really good point though, about like, um, response, like toxic masculinity and support because women, I think are, like there, there are a couple sayings where people will be like, women don't actually dress up for men. They dress up for other women, you know, like whatever. There's like nonsense out there. But um, but women, I think because we realize that we're just like under the harsh, like consistent eye of the male gaze and like ridiculous beauty standards, um, whether or not we're cis or het, like we're just constantly, yeah. like we're under this brutalizing um situation we i think we compensate for that by like having each other's backs and being like you know what you look really cute or like yeah you know we do this thing but conversely i don't uh, men need to be told that they're beautiful right yeah yeah a good job of of saying like hey inversely men need to be honest about how much the media and their own upbringing and all that kind of stuff plays a role in their desires to, to look a certain way or in their own image of themselves. I, um, I was going to say, I'm with you on that. I wore a full face of makeup, including lipstick yesterday for a presentation. And I was in a meeting with a committee that I lead and, um, or like a subgroup of that committee. And I heard audible gasps when my, um, camera turned on because they were they were like oh, you're so beautiful and i was like dang it damn i don't wear makeup no one i've ever seen on zoom <laughs> looks that good in the last year oh my god <laughs> like, what has happened whoa. to us exactly like what's going on just so yeah. <laughs> we worship oh. <laughs> you know i was just like i clearly need to put on just like throw on some makeup from time to time like it was just like <laughs> but the like last <gasps> <laughs> wow. break yeah, yeah. <laughs> contacts in like i was ready for my close-up like and um but yeah, but I, I mean, it's probably, look, you sit, you, you in just your natural face, set the standard high. So like, you're already, you're, it's already like, you're not gross on camera. So like, that's already, um, yeah, there's you know, a residual a boom whenever you come on camera. Yeah. So it's like, uh, there's another reason it, why we call you residual boom. Yes. <laughs> four pages, residual boom. <laughs> They call me four pages residual boom. <laughs> Charcuterie taking over the room. That's the end of my rapping. Uh, but no, so for you, like putting on a face of makeup is like when Wonder Woman gets her full powers. It's it's like when she's in the sky and like, Caca! and like the, you know, like the Jesus pose. Like you already know that she was gorgeous throughout the movie, but now you're like, ah, I see your true power. It's a woman. And it's, That's yeah, true. you're just, uh, you become emblazoned on their minds in a new way. Um, it, like, I, could you, I could rule all of you and I, I remind so, you of that today. Well, so this is the reason why you have hot friends. You make them hot. Though you, you keep talking <laughs> like that. Anybody will show up and show out and like will not be stopped. You know, like you, they have Laurel Ryan in their ear and they're like, yes, yes. <laughs> think, yes, I am hot. Like that's uh, all of the things that you said. I appreciate. I will take them. I will listen to them. But no, 
I love to give a compliment. This makes me think of like kind of a, a nirvana of of hotness, which is devoid of image and is actually just like pure reflected swagger and confidence in one's <laughs> oneness. <Yes>. Like, <laughs> in Venus, like today, I am me up to eleven. In, yeah, that's, in purest form. The yeah. Nirvana of of hotness. Yes. I love that. I another say, thing I'll say about like the compliment thing is uh so and this podcast will never end. Uh so okay, no, to okay. go back to when I was <laughs> like maybe a, a year in and being taught like being told about show to be shown competitions uh and then to be told like who actually deserved to win or why the winners won or um, you know, to just be given just an onslaught of opinions and be like, sure, I trust you. Yes. Um, for, you know, both positive and negative. And then, uh, also to like feel the weight of, uh, especially unintentional discrimination. Cause again, I would say most people involved in Lindy hop are not intentionally and actively, uh, discriminatory. They just don't, uh, uh, not aware of well anyway we've talked about that but so like feeling that weight then I would look around um at especially the followers either around me who I was trying to you know quote to, to fight for a class placement level or to fight to get into these uh prelims or to fight to get from the prelims to the finals uh or who were being uh, exalted as the 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 advanced dancers or just throwing themselves into the jam circles, like, look what I can do. And I would feel such um, like self-preservationist disdain, like just to like make myself feel better. My body was, or my brain was like, you know what? They actually, they suck is the thing and you're fine. Uh, and you don't need to change. And it's just that they are d dumb and stupid. <laughs> And probably very mean. You don't like them. Anyway, because uh, like, I wasn't seeing myself represented. I saw, and I don't even remember her name. It was a gorgeous dancer from the West uh, West Coast in like a competition one time at ILHC. And then like D-Lock, um, I hadn't learned that Marie was dancing yet. So I like, I saw one person, one in the entire dance. who so I was like, kind of looks like me, except she's like 10 times cooler than I'll ever be. So, you know. There's no catching up to people who are continuing to practice their craft. So I'll just be this guy. Um, and when I realized that I was doing this of just like dismissing everybody who was achieving something that I wanted and couldn't have, I started to uh, watch and challenge myself to find something that I liked about the way that they danced. And to find, or when I was around them, to find something that I liked about them as a person. And uh, it turns out that there are a lot of cool people doing cool things in this dance who I like love to spend time with and get to know. But if I had allowed myself to just be like, mm, well, she just gets fucked because she is beautiful and blonde and an ideal gazelle of a woman. Nobody's going to pay attention to a little bulldog puppy like me. Uh, like she could never relate. Then I'm, you know, possibly robbing myself of a, if not a friendship, at least like a, a fun interaction with somebody. Um, or I would like, uh, I would ask to dance with some of these followers who I would just feel this jealousy of. So it was, it started to become a practice of like checking in when I was being particularly negative about other people uh, or it was, I was focusing on one person in particular and be like, they have done nothing to you. Okay. What it like, <laughs> they've literally, they're just trying to do their best in this world. Um, you know, they didn't, <laughs> they didn't spit in your eye. Uh, or like try and push you down the stairs. Be nice, you dummy. Uh, and that 
that not only allowed me to be um, less, uh, like to just feel less hurt um, and, and to need that like self-preservationist like disdain less, but uh, also it allowed me to focus, like to turn that same practice inward and be like, okay, what do, what do I like about the way that I dance? What do I enjoy about uh, myself since I'm being constantly told to change from the outside. And of course, when I watch myself on video, I don't look anything like the people who I wish I looked like do don't have the same body type. Don't have the same, uh, like, you know, I don't have the same partner to practice with. I don't have as much time to practice as they do. I don't have like as active a scene or I don't like all the other reasons why we are different people. Um, you know, rather I could just focus on what I, uh, enjoyed and that changed my perspective entirely. And that thing about like Lindy hop hurting me, I was able to endure those hurts a lot. Like I never thought, well, maybe I should quit Lindy hop, uh, because I could find value in what I brought to the dance, regardless of what the people around me were doing. So I like that bringing the bathroom attitude of like, you're doing great. The mirror loves you. I love you. Get out there and slay queen. Like bringing that attitude to the rest of, you know, outside of the bathroom, applying it to ourselves really does make a difference. Um, you know, without falling into the trap of like toxic positivity if we're like nothing's wrong sure things are wrong but you can deal with them better if you have practiced finding positivity integrated rhythm with Jasomo and bobby